Today's sermon text reading comes from the book of John, chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, when I was young, perhaps middle school aged, there was a song, What is Love? And it became very popular. It was written by a man named Hathaway. And the song really epitomized the sound of the 90s and became even more popular when Saturday Night Live produced a skit off of it. Now, I was far too young to know anything about Hadaway or what the song was even about. And so in, in no way take this as an, an endorsement from your pastor. But if you were my age and you grew up during the 90s and you would have heard the, the main theme of this song a thousand times, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. And as soon as you heard that song, you would start bobbing your head like a fool. This is what I would do at the middle school dance as I was trying to be cool and impress the girls. None of them were very impressed by my bobbing head, but it was a very popular song. And that idea that love means avoiding all pain is a very common understanding of love. And that's not all bad. Perhaps it's even mostly true. If, if we love somebody, we are not going to go out of our way to intentionally make their life more difficult or painful. And many times, if we love somebody, we will actually stand in the gap, and we will absorb the pain. We will absorb the suffering in, our, in their place. It's what Jesus did on the cross. We deserved to be punished, and yet Jesus absorbed the punishment for us. And so love will often mean that we do not hurt others. But not always. As it is with some of the most important categories in life, it is very difficult to come up with a single monolithic definition of love. Because love, true love, will sometimes mean that we allow suffering and pain if the intended result is for 
the good of the one who is loved. This section of John chapter 11 has the chance to radically change how you understand the love of Christ. At least it did for me many years ago when I first heard a sermon preached by John Piper on this section. It just flipped my entire world upside down. And the key to this section all revolves around one single word. See that word in verse 6. It is the very first word in verse 6. In English, it is the word so. In Greek, the word is un. That little word is a particle. And that word, as a particle, introduces the result of or an inference to what has just been previously stated. And that word un is often translated as so. It could also be translated as therefore. The basic gist is that everything that we see in verse 6 happens because of what we just read in verse 5. There is a very strong connection between these two verses. Verse 5 flows and pushes us into verse 6. But let's get back to that in a minute. Let's, before we go any farther, let's set the stage a bit for what is happening here in this narrative. At the end of John chapter 10, everyone is again mad at Jesus. And so the anger is continuing to rise. The people want to arrest him. But like always, Jesus is able to escape. And he leaves and heads east into the region of Jordan. And now that Jesus is in Jordan, he gets word that his very good friend Lazarus is ill. Lazarus, as we see, is the brother of Mary and Martha, who are also very good friends of Jesus. Lazarus is ill. This is not the kind of illness. It's, it's not the, the common cold. It's not the stomach bug. No, Lazarus is on his deathbed. And because of Lazarus's condition, Jesus decides to return back to Judea, where he has just come from. So that's why when you get to verse 8... The disciples are very scared. They say, Jesus, we were just there. And we, we had to escape. We were almost killed. We were almost stoned. Why do you want to go back to Judea? It seems very dangerous. That's what verse 10 is un unpacking, why Jesus will go back. If you've ever been up in the, the middle of the night, you've likely stumbled around the house. You've hit your toe against the wall. You've perhaps even run into a wall, walking in the darkness is very dangerous. Light shows you direction. Light provides safety in the darkness. And we've seen here in John that Jesus is the light of the world. So as long as you walk with him, as long as he is on earth and that he is the light of the day, then Jesus is going to be okay. And the disciples will be okay. And so because Jesus is the light, he is willing to walk right back into the darkness of Judea. Jesus is the light. Stick with him, you're going to be safe. And so back to Judea, Jesus goes. And by the time that Jesus arrives, we see in verse 14 that Lazarus has already died. Jesus is too late to heal him. Now there's, there's always some more progressive scholars. They're very smart and they read big books and they think, oh, well, you know, maybe Lazarus wasn't actually 
all the way dead. You know, maybe Lazarus is just unconscious or he's passed out. Or maybe Lazarus is close to death but isn't actually dead. Or maybe this is all just an allegory. So it's not a physical death, but just a spiritual death. And so this is all a great parable that Jesus is trying to teach us. I've, I've mentioned this before, but one of the keys for reading and understanding the Bible is this. That the disciples and the writers of the Bible, and especially Jesus himself, they are not dumb. You know, sometimes here in 2021, we think, well, we're so enlightened, and they must have been such fools, and they didn't even know what a dead person is. They're not dumb. When it says that Lazarus had died, he had actually died. The disciples knew it. Mary knew it. Martha knew it. Jesus knew it. John, who is the writer of this account, they all knew it. We don't need a smart Alex scholar 2,021 years later to tell us, no, he's not actually dead. The man has died. Now, maybe I'm going to ruin the element of surprise here, but later in verse 43, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the grave. And so that is where this story in John 11 is headed. It is moving towards death and resurrection. But with that in mind, knowing that Jesus can save people from death, why does Jesus not come sooner. Jesus came sooner than this situation could have been much easier. So now let's go back to verse 6 to see why Jesus did it this way. We see that Jesus loved Mary, he loved Martha, and he loved Lazarus. That, that is abundantly clear here in John 11. John, the writer, makes sure to drive that point home that these three people, this family is very close to Jesus. Jesus loves them. Look in verse 3. It says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's Lazarus. Jesus loves him. You see it again in verse 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha, and he loved her sister, and he loved Lazarus. Jesus loved these people. He's not against them. He is not out to punish them. He is for them. He has a deep, warm, personal love for this family. You might have noticed in verse 2 the reference to Mary washing the feet of Jesus. Now that, that story has not yet happened. That's going to come later in the gospel according to John. So we need to ask, why does John throw that detail in if it has not yet happened. The reason is because the early church, when they would have heard this letter, they're already somewhat familiar with some of the stories and especially the people. And so the early church would have known Mary, Martha, Lazarus as being these exceptionally close friends of Jesus. And so John says, when I'm writing this story, I'm talking about that Mary. I'm talking about that Martha. I'm talking about the family that Jesus is close to. And the early listeners would have known. This family is as close to Jesus as anyone else in the entire New Testament. Jesus loved these three. There's a deep, personal, warm-hearted friendship between them. If you want to understand the main point of this sermon, you need to be absolutely convinced that Jesus loves these three people, that he is working for their good that he is trying to bless them. He is trying to give them more joy. Jesus is for these 
people. And that is why the so of verse 6 is so shocking. Open your bulletins again and and look at this with me because I I want you to see it. Starting in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Remember that that verse 6 is the result of verse 5. Because Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he actually stayed two days longer. Jesus did not go back because he loved them. Now, at first glance, this makes no sense. If somebody I knew was sick, especially if it was a very close personal friend of mine who was about to die, I I would drop everything to drive or to fly to go and see my friend. I would want to say goodbye. I would not wait two days. I would do it immediately. But this story is even more shocking than that because Jesus could have actually healed Lazarus. He's healed plenty of people before. He's going to raise Lazarus a few days later. He could have just showed up on time, could have healed the man, and yet he waits. He waits two full days before heading to him. Think for a minute of the pain that Lazarus is in. We don't know specifically why he died. We don't know the type of illness that he has, but we can assume that he is likely in some pain. He is not doing well. We could also assume that he is likely scared. When, when Lazarus is dying, he has no idea that he is going to be raised to life just a few days later. So he dies a scared man. And think of the emotional pain of Mary and Martha. The sadness of these sisters saying goodbye Preparing Lazarus for the tomb, just gut-wrenching, heartbreaking pain. The absolute worst moments of life always surround the death of a loved one. So here are the sisters, they're they're grieving, gut-wrenching grief. And Jesus, he could have stopped it all. He could have spared so much sorrow. And yet, because Jesus loved them. He stayed away for two days. Now, why would Jesus do that? If the goal is, baby, don't hurt me no more, then it would appear that Jesus is not a very loving man because these three people have all been hurt. But if there is a deeper meaning to love than simply just moving beyond the pain, then perhaps Jesus knows what he is doing and is actually the most loving person in the entire world. Now, to understand this, you need to remember the overarching purpose of this gospel account. You see it in John chapter 20, verse 31. It reads, So this book has been written so that you might believe that the Christ is Jesus, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So everything, all the stories, all the verses here in the gospel according to John, they have all been written down so that we might believe. 
That's the end goal of this book. God knows that we are prone to doubt, and so he has given us the gospel according to John. He has given us these stories illumined by the Spirit so that we might have greater belief in God. And you see in verse 15, here in John chapter 11, Jesus says, And for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you might believe. Jesus is doing this to help our belief. And he is doing this because he loves us. See, Disney movies do not have the final word on what love is. Jesus has the final word. And in this instance, true love is doing what it takes to help other people find belief in God, even if pain is part of the process. No death of Lazarus means no resurrection of Lazarus meaning that Jesus could not say, I am the resurrection and the life, meaning Mary, Martha, and Lazarus will not be able to believe in Jesus and the one who causes resurrection. Love is aimed at what is best, and belief in God is what is best. Therefore, Jesus is willing to do what it takes for there to be true belief in the world. You are made to believe in God. You're made for belief because you are made for him. You are made to believe in the God who is the definition of beauty and joy. And the God who at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. You are made to believe in the God who is triune in existence, yet distinct in person, yet united in eternal love. You are made to be right with the God who speaks and words cause worlds to be brought into existence. You are made for the God who paints the skies and raises the mountains and fills the seas. You are made for the God who can raise dead people from the ground, including one day you. God in, in whose image you are made, you are made for him. You are made for God. Therefore, belief in him is the ultimate blessing. Your truest life will be found when you find belief in God. And yet we live in this sin-filled world because of sin, because of doubt, we suppress our belief in God. We suppress what we know about him. We deceive ourselves in a million different ways. We think God's not even real, or we think God's not for us, but he's against us. Or we think God is just out to steal our joy and to rob from us, that he is a killjoy, that he is not the God of life, but he is the God of death. And so we stuff down in our souls what we instinctively know to be true about God. And yet here is Jesus trying to unstuff it all and say, belief. We need to believe. Jesus knows that belief in God is good for Mary, that it's good for Martha, that it's good for Lazarus, and so he waits two days so that Lazarus would die. He waits because through the waiting, belief will be more possible. Even though we might walk through pain in this life, if we put on the perspective of eternity, we see that pain is worth it if it helps us have greater 
belief in God. Would it have been wrong for Jesus to leave right away and heal Lazarus? Of course not. And on some level, that would have been a very good, loving, and glorious thing to do. But it would not have been the best thing. It would have been loving, it just would not have been the most loving. So Jesus waits because he wants to maximize his love to the fullest. And if you belong to God, I don't assume that everyone here is a Christian, but if you are a Christian here this morning, then Jesus is doing the same thing for you. You need to know two things if you're a Christian. I probably need to know a lot more than two, but at least for the sake of this sermon, two things that you need to know this morning. Number one, you need to know that Jesus loves you. It's likely the very first thing you heard the day that you became a Christian, that he loves you, that he's for you. And that is absolutely true. And you need to be convinced in your heart that it is true. In the same way that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Jesus loves you. And then you need to know, secondly, because he loves you, he will often not give you what is good because he wants to give you something better. Jesus will often wait so that you might have what is best. Jesus loves you, and he is committed to giving you the best. Now, before you start accusing me of sounding like a, a tele-evangelist, you know, that's promising the best and health and wealth and all that kind of stuff, let's just real quickly make it clear. What is the best thing here? What is the best gift that Jesus does here in John chapter 11? It is not the resurrection of Lazarus. No, it is faith in God. That's what Jesus is after. Beyond even the healing, Jesus wants us to grow in belief. Why? Because belief in him is life in him. Belief in Christ unites us to his death and resurrection. Therefore, we share in all the benefits of the risen Christ. Belief is the gift. I was listening recently to a podcast it's hosted by my good friend Kevin DeYoung. And on the podcast, Kevin was interviewing Tim Keller. Tim Keller's the former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And it was recently announced that Tim Keller has pancreatic cancer. Now, thankfully, they found the cancer fairly early on. The, the treatments seem to be working. But the long-term prognosis for pancreatic cancer is not a good one. And in this podcast, Kevin asked Tim how people might be praying for him. And Tim Keller said, of course, he's very thankful for prayers for medical treatment and that cancer would go away. But, but Tim said, don't pray for my fight against cancer. Because that's not the real fight of the Christian. The real fight of the Christian is to believe in the promises of God, to believe in the promise of the resurrection. Because if, if Tim had the kind of faith to experience the kind of belief that would shape your life in such a deep and profound way, Tim would say, then I would no longer fear death. But I would actually look forward to it. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. So the real fight of the Christian is the fight for faith, not even the fight against cancer. As we believe, we, we personally experience all the benefits of being a Christian. 
It's how Jonathan Edwards would say it in his well-known book, Religious Affections. He says, there is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. You can look at honey and, and state some facts. A, a scientist could tell you what honey is made of, its composition. Even not being a scientist, you could say, well, I know that honey is yellow, and I know that honey is sticky, and I know that honey is made by a bee. But it is an altogether different thing to actually taste the sweetness of honey. Not, not just to observe the facts of honey, but to actually taste the sweetness on your tongue. Now, belief in God certainly contains the facts. We, we don't just believe in blind faith. We don't be the kind of church that says, never ask any questions, just believe. That, that's not helpful. But at some point, we need to move beyond just knowledge of God to personal belief, where we would actually taste in a personal way the sweetness of God. True belief is when we would taste God for all that he is. That is the best thing. And that sweetness of tasting God will often come through Christ withholding the good so that we might taste the better. Now, good things are a blessing. We should never despise the good things that God has given us. If we have good health, we should be thankful. If we have good circumstances, we should be thankful. If we have good resources, then we should be thankful. But good things can often keep us from the best. And so Jesus will sometimes go out of his way. Perhaps he will even wait two days so that we might get something better, which is a deeper trust in God. In the moment of pain, again, think of Mary and think of Martha here. That their, their brother has just died. There's deep grief. We'll see next week in verse 20. Now, Martha is even a little bit offended that Jesus did not come sooner. She says, if you had been here, Jesus, my brother would not have died. And yet Jesus waits. And the waiting causes belief. Look with me, one final verse. Look with me at verse 4. Where Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Jesus waited so that Lazarus might die, so that God might be glorified. And as we have been going through the gospel according to John, God's glory is deeply connected to the revealing of Jesus as the Son. I get that from John chapter 114, going all the way back to the prologue. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's the good news? What, what's the good news of Christianity? The good news is that Jesus, who is full of grace and he is full of truth, Jesus is being revealed to us. Jesus, who is the Son of God. Jesus, who took on flesh and has come to us as a man. Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Jesus, who is the great shepherd. Jesus, who is the God who says, I am. Jesus, the door, the gate, the bread of life. The glory of God is the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son for you. It is the best news in the world. And therefore, believe in him. But belief is hard. 
We're prone to wondering, Lord, we do in fact feel it. We are prone to be distracted. And so Jesus, because he loves us, because he really, truly loves us and wants us to have what is absolutely best in this world, Jesus will often withhold what is good so that we might come to what is best, which is trusting in himself. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard message, but it is a good one. We do, at least in our heads, recognize that belief in you is the best thing. While it is a dangerous prayer, and we're perhaps even hesitant to pray it, Lord, if there are things that need to be withheld in our life so that we might have what is best, best, Lord, we ask that you would do it. Bless us now. Give us greater belief. In Jesus' name, amen.